Australia's governance is going backwards. Without change, there is little prospect for many substantial policy reforms that would increase Australian prosperity. But should we pine for the golden years of Australian policy reform, or is there a way forward from here? With me to discuss his very last report for Grattan, Gridlock, Removing Barriers to Policy Reform, is Grattan's founding CEO, John Daly. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure. So I mentioned before that many people hark back to the golden years of policy reform in the 80s and 90s. Is this really the case or is it just a matter of rose-coloured glasses? Well, it certainly can sound a lot like rose-coloured glasses as you listen to um, old uh, journalists and politicians talk about the glorious golden years of the 80s and 90s and maybe the first term or two of the Howard government. But We wanted to test that. So we did, in fact, essentially just list out all of the substantial reforms, um, you know, from those those golden years. And it it really is true. It's a much more impressive list of economic reforms than the economic reforms we've seen over the last um, 10 or 15 years. Um, Then the other thing we did to check was, because, you know, maybe that's just hindsight and we don't quite understand how, how well we've done over the last 15 years. What we did was we went and got looked at all of the things that the OECD recommends. So the OECD does these country reports about once every 18 months for all of its members. And as part of those reports, they say, look, we recommend that you do A, B, C, D and E. Uh, and often given that, you know, A, B, C, D and E take don't happen all that often, um, they'll wind up recommending those things year after year after year until either one, they finally happen, or two, a government finally says, oh, look, we're just not going to do it. So we looked at that history of OECD reports, and we found the same thing, that that a lot of what they recommended in the 80s and 90s had in fact happened, more or less in the 80s and 90s. Far more of what they recommended over the last decade has been explicitly rejected by government and has just disappeared off the agenda. So Grattan has proposed a lot of reforms in the decade between 2009 and 2019 that weren't adopted. Why didn't they happen? Well, that's exactly what we tried to work out as part of this report. We took every single substantial recommendation that Grattan had made. Uh, We sort of grouped them up. So we came up with about 73 different recommendations and asked why didn't they happen or why did they happen? So about 23 of them did happen. So that's about one in three did happen, more or less. You know, obviously, victory is never total in in the world of government. It's always about compromise. Um, But about two-thirds of them did not happen. And when we looked at why did they not happen, uh, a couple of patterns jumped out at us. One is um, if a policy was unpopular, in other words, if you went and did a poll, more people thought it was a bad idea than a good idea, it never happened. Not a single unpopular policy happened over the last decade. And that's really different to the um, 80s and 90s and the 2000s when many of the things that governments did were unpopular at the time. So if you think about um, many of the privatisations, if you think about um, the introduction of the GST, if you think about the introduction of the capital gains tax, all of these things were unpopular at the time and indeed many of them still are. Uh, If you take a poll of the Australian population today and say, do you think we should raise tariff barriers to protect um, local manufacturing? Um, More people will say yes than no. Uh, If you ask them whether we should have privatised the Commonwealth Bank and Telstra, more people will say we should have left them owned by government. Um, So these were the kind of unpopular decisions, what maybe, yes, um, uh, Sir Humphrey would have described as courageous decisions that were taken in the 90s and the 2000s, the kinds of decisions that 
prime ministers and treasurers and other ministers um, went out and argued for in, pop, in public, knowing that more of the people hated them than liked them, uh, and, and then pushed them through. So that's difference number one is we used to do stuff that's unpopular. And over the last 10 years, as I said, out of that group of 73 reforms, not one that was unpopular has happened. The second thing we found was that there were these substantial shibboleths, as we call them. So these are tribal beliefs that essentially mark you as a member of the tribe. And we can maybe talk a bit later about why these shibboleths are important, but but they're not based on, on fact. Indeed, um, it is helpful if they're not based on fact. And you can tell that these things are shibboleths because A, they're not very well supported by any kind of evidence. And secondly, every single member of the relevant party or faction has the same view on them. So uh, the most obvious of these is climate change and beliefs about climate change are in the conservative wing of the um, uh, Liberal National Party. But there's lots of other examples. So, for example, you will not find a single member of the ALP who will say that any kind of GST package is a good idea. Now, it is obvious that it is very possible to design a GST package in which you increase or broaden the GST and you also change a whole series of welfare settings so that on average, um, people uh, in the bottom 20% are miles in front. So it's very easy to come up with a progressive package. Nevertheless, you will not find a single member of the ALP who's prepared to even start discussing that idea. Similarly, it's very hard to get anyone, in fact, there is no one from the current ALP who is prepared to say that the superannuation guarantee shouldn't go to 12%. Most of them say it should go higher than that. Now, there are a lot of pretty respectable economists, apart from Grattan, saying that it does not make any sense to increase the super guarantee past 9.5%. And yet, not one person in the ALP will believe that, or at least will say that in public. Many of them may well believe it in private, but they won't say it in public. And because of these shibboleths, you just can't make any progress in those policy areas. So that turns out to be a really big problem. Then there's a problem which we expected to find was a really big problem, which is basically vested interests. Um, anytime you get policy change, you know, invariably, that's someone's going to be losing. Uh, Manka Olson wrote um, a very famous book called The um, Logic of Collective Action, in which he said essentially small concentrated losers tend to be more effective political fighters than the dispersed public interest, and consequently vested interests always, almost always win. Actually, what we found was something slightly different and, and in many ways much more interesting. If the position of those vested interests was opposed by really good evidence, then the vested interests often lost. So, for example, we've had a situation in which um, electricity retailers were basically charging, in effect, very high average prices. They're getting an extremely large retail margin. In other words, the difference between what you pay and the wholesale price for electricity. And they were doing that because essentially a lot of people were very careless. The way that um, the prices were conveyed was extremely misleading. Um, and consequently, um, they made very high profit margins. What happened was that there were two quite significant inquiries. So we didn't count Grattan work as evidence because by definition, all the things we're looking at had Grattan evidence. But on that issue, there was some very substantial um, external evidence. Um, uh, for example, there was the Thwaites review in Victoria that basically looked into it and said, no, it looks like this is a real problem and we should effectively cap the prices that um, the retailers are allowed to charge. 
Now, needless to say, the retailers squealed like crazy and put in all kinds of submissions and public things about why this was outrageous, but they lost. And so what we found was when there was good public evidence like that, often the vested interests lost. But when there wasn't much evidence, then by and large, in fact, almost, in fact, pretty much every single time, the vested interests won. And we think that what happens in real life is that public servants go into the minister and say, you know, we think it'd be a really good idea to do this reform. And the vested interests come into the minister's office and say, well, if you do that, the sky will fall in. And the minister says to the public servants, well, sounds like the sky will fall in because, you know, these people, you know, are right on the ground and, you know, they're the ones who really understand the industry and they're telling me the sky will fall in. So we better not do it. So that's what happens if you've got no external evidence. But if you can have external evidence and the, and the public servant turns around and says, yes, but minister, on page 37, the review of this issue, which went into it in extreme detail, found that, in fact, the sky is not going to fall in and indeed shows you between pages 37 and 57 why the sky is not going to fall in. Then the minister goes, ah, then the sky won't fall in. And he turns to the vested interests and says, the report says the sky won't fall in. I'm going to believe the report because unlike you, it doesn't have a vested interest in this fight. So we're going to do this. So that's why it turns out that evidence is really important, much more important than we even thought it was. And Grattan's an evidence-based think tank. So, John, I feel like you've just made a very clear argument for the importance of Grattan's work in that we are an independent, um, research-based, fact-based uh, think tank. And, you know, there is a really huge place for this um, research-based policy reform here, as you've clearly pointed out. Now, I want to touch back on that first point you made, because this idea of popular idea versus unpopular idea in politics, I mean, people are concerned with their re-election campaigns, especially we've got an election coming up next year, we assume. Don't we live in a democracy? I mean, if the public don't like a proposed reform, why should policy change? Liberal democracies have always been a kind of delicate balance between you know, whatever happens in the ballot box uh, and a whole series of institutions um, from the Reserve Bank um, to, you know, the electricity regulators, all of the rest of it. We create all of these kind of institutions that are actually designed to be expert and at least some of the time to counterbalance whatever is, you know, the wishes of the majority. Uh, there's a very, very famous quote by um, Edmund Burke who was a somewhat short-lived member of parliament, but a rather more long-lived um, philosopher, uh, who said that as an elected representative, what he owed to his constituents was um, his good judgment. Members of parliament are not elected just to reflect popular opinion. They are elected to reflect their good judgment. And occasionally that means telling people something that they don't necessarily want to hear. Now, one of the things that I would point out, though, as part of this process is you can move public opinion very substantially if you are a prime minister or a treasurer or a minister in charge of something. But you will only move public opinion if you try. And so there are substantial examples of people taking on policies which are relatively unpopular and significantly moving the dial. Uh, so if you look at the history, for example, of capital gains tax reform back in the uh, 80s and 90s, um, you know, Paul Keating did actually go out and explain at length why this was a good idea, um, made it part of a package and ultimately, you know, got re-elected on the back of having put that major set of tax reforms through. Um, ironically, you know, we get to today, that's actually one of the reforms which is now popular in retrospect. Um, you know, if you ask people, do you think capital gains tax should be increased? Actually, more say yes than no. You can move public opinion over time, but 
you need to try. And there's lots of evidence that elected representatives and you know prime ministers and ministers in particular can move public opinion if they try. And what we found is that over the last 10 years, a couple of very small number of honourable exceptions, by and large, they haven't tried. And I think there's another thing there too, which we've done some research on before, which is trust in government. And I mean, you know, trust in government has decreased over time and we are less likely to trust the government when they say to us, oh, this change will be good for you. That's that's absolutely right. And so all of those things that go to trust in government in terms of, you know, making sure that people are using their parliamentary entitlements properly, pork barrelling, for example, is deeply unpopular, slightly counterintuitively. Um, but you ask people, you know, what do they think about pork barrelling? And, and actually about 70% of the population think that politicians who um, pork barrel should resign from parliament. I mean, that's how much people think it's a bad idea. Uh, it's pretty obvious why if people are using resource, government resources for the purposes of getting themselves re-elected as opposed to anyone else, you can see why populists at large think that that's not really how public scarce public money ought to be used. It ought to be used wherever it's going to make the most difference um, rather than wherever it's going to maximise someone's chances of re-election. Um, you can understand why that brings down trust in government. Now, of course, one of the ironies is that COVID is an opportunity. COVID has massively increased trust in federal parliament, in parliamentarians generally, and in government in Australia. Um, uh, that's actually a worldwide trend, um, although it's gone up by more in Australia than most of the places we could compare it to. So there is an opportunity here. Uh, again, it's not one that obviously is being taken. If you look at the federal government's current reform agenda, it'd be fair to say it remains pretty thin in terms of doing all of the kinds of things that are on the Grattan list or the Productivity Commission list. So that leads quite nicely into my next question for you, John, which is if we want to improve the chances of reform, do we just need better leaders? Well, this is something you hear a lot. Once upon a time, we had really good leaders and now just like, you know, as a matter of random chance, perhaps for 20 years, we haven't had good leaders. You do start to think that maybe there's something structural going on as opposed to just you know, we got lucky a lot back in the past. Uh, and it's worth remembering that those golden years, the 80s and 90s, 2000s, they weren't just golden years in federal politics. Um, you know, those were the years of all of the Kennett reforms in Victoria. They were the years of all of the um, Griner reforms in New South Wales. You know, we did throw up leaders prepared to make substantial changes, often you know, having to take on the public, uh, public opinion. And lots of people like that in the past. Now we don't. And I think that there is something structural going on. And of course, that then means, well, what do we change about the institutions to make it more likely that we get this kind of reform to happen? By definition, that reform will have leaders who will look fabulous in retrospect. Um, but I think that, you know, this is about saying that, that Thomas Carlyle was wrong. You know, history is not just the history of great men. Uh, you know, history is the history of structural forces and society and institutions and the way that we design those things. And then we have great leaders, some of whom are women and some of whom are men, um, but they work more effectively if we design the institutions the right way. Grattan has done quite a bit of work in institutional reform. It's one of our core areas of research. We've consistently called for change in this area, but how do you enable change when the reforms will affect the politicians and parties the most? Well, I think that's really hard because the kind of reforms that you need are things like saying you can't just fire um, a public service secretary at will, bearing in mind that almost a third of 
um, uh, Commonwealth Public Service Secretaries of Departments have been fired over the last decade. Uh, you um, probably want to reduce the power of ministerial advisors and how many of them there are <clears throat> and increase the number that are coming from public service type backgrounds rather than from purely party political backgrounds. Because again, if you look back at the Hawke-Keating reforms, most of the um, chiefs of staff for ministers were not people who were, if you like, professional political advisors. They were people who had been heads of department or very senior in departments or academics, very senior academics like Ross um, Garno, as opposed to, frankly, people who've spent their entire life working for one political party um, as a ministerial advisor. So you need those kinds of changes. Um, and, you know, saying to a, one of our major political parties, we think you should have fewer advisors and there should be um, you know, few, more often drawn from the public service and you should have a more independent public service that will occasionally or more often tell you what you don't want to hear. We also would like it if uh, there were other reforms, such as, for example, you can't just, you know, so easily go from a job um, as a ministerial advisor to being a member of parliament to, frankly, a cushy job in government relations, if not a job to which the government appoints you. So, for example, if you look at the appointments to the AAT over the last uh, seven years, they have over, um, I think it's something like, um, you know, a fifth of them have gone to men, people who essentially have very tight con um, links to the Liberal Party, Liberal National Party. None of them, pretty much, have gone to people who've got tight links with the ALP. Now, you know, maybe um, uh, Australia has an extraordinarily disproportionate number of people with connections to the LNP, uh, Liberal National Party who have understanding of administrative law and administration and good administration, but does seem a little improbable. So you'd need to change all of those things. And funnily enough, our major political parties are very keen on that. You'd also need to change um, donations so that you made them much more um, transparent. Uh, you would need to probably limit donations. You'd want to limit campaign spending, a whole series of things that major political parties are not going to find uh, very exciting. So the reality is most of these changes are actually really popular. Um, so this is not something where we're fighting against public opinion. This is something where if you run a straw poll tomorrow, you'll get four out of five Australians saying it would be a good idea to limit donations. And for example, to mean that um, donations at the federal government level were disclosed, you know, a little earlier than 18 months after they were made, you know, perhaps within a week, given the fact that, you know, this internet thing appears to be quite good at doing that. Um, but apparently that's, you know, no political, none of the major political parties in Australia, uh, or at least at Commonwealth level, are prepared to do that. So those are the kinds of things you'd have to change. Major political parties not very interested. I think the only way that change is really going to happen uh, on this stuff is if independents hold the balance of power in the lower house and they insist on this stuff as the price of power. And actually we have good precedents for that. If you look at um, how do we wind up with the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is perhaps, in fact, not perhaps, it is definitely the most significant governance change that we've seen at the federal level in the last 15 years. And the answer is it was an explicit part of the deal between um, a number of independents and the Gillard government. Uh, they said, we will support you to be the prime minister, but if and only if um, you agree that there will be a parliamentary budget office and indeed a parliamentary budget office was legislated um, very soon thereafter. So, John, I mean, we've seen some of the states enact legislation to do this, but you'd really like to see this on a federal level as well, and I, I know I would. Are you basically saying that we need more train drivers in Parliament? <laughs> well, of course, Ben Chifley did drive a train, and I don't think there's anybody uh, in the federal parliament today who drove a train. Um, 
these kind of institutional changes would upset the very cosy cartelization that we've seen of political parties, not just in Australia, but essentially around the world. So our political parties, far fewer members, um, essentially the route into politics has increasingly become via being a ministerial advisor or a union representative rather than you know having some role out in the community and then moving into parliament. Um, so essentially our political parties have become almost an arm of government as opposed to something that genuinely mediates between the people and government. Um, and that's not just an Australian phenomenon, that's a global phenomenon. And some of the changes that I've been talking about that are explained in a bit more detail in the report are the kinds of things that would upset that somewhat cosy arrangement. Um, so yes, that would help to have more people in parliament who had, say, driven a train. Um, bearing in mind there's probably fewer train drivers these days than there were um, back when Ben Chifley was uh, Prime Minister. So it does sound a little bit pessimistic, this uh, this vision of where Australian politics is at right now. Is there any space for hope in Australian politics? Oh, I think there is space for hope if we decide to do something about these government's problems. Um, they are very serious problems. I think there's been a bit of a boiling frog um, sort of scenario over the last 20 years. Our governance has been deteriorating. Uh, conventions are not being followed nearly as much as they have been. Pork barrelling is becoming you know, substantially more blatant. Um, appointments are becoming substantially more driven by essentially, are you a member of our political tribe as opposed to, are you the most competent person we could possibly appoint? Um, you know, All of those conventions are breaking down um, and none of it is ultimately good for the governance of the country. Uh, so, yeah, we do have a problem, and I think that we need to face up to the fact that we've got an increasing problem uh, and do something about it. Now, as I said, I think the most likely route um, is for the independents to wind up holding the balance of power, and when you've got six or seven um, more or less independents um, in the lower house, as we do at the moment, that's actually quite plausible. Um, just you know, throw the dice enough times and they'll wind up being in the middle. Um but but I think there's there's one other route. If you look at the history of the states, if you wind up with a royal commission or a commission against corruption that winds up holding hearings day after day, um, with you know ministers and premiers, you know showing up and you know the the extent of the problems being exposed, as for example happened with the Fitzgerald Royal Commission in Queensland, you do wind up with an overwhelming public um, drive for reform that the opposition will pick up. Now, the reason that that happens, I suspect, is that that kind of thing is kind of fabulous political theatre, you know, and it and it winds up playing on the um, television screens just night after night after night. And you saw that with the Hain Royal Commission on Banking. If those were hearings into government as opposed to private um, enterprises, um, you would understand why it would become very difficult to resist the public pressure. Absent that kind of thing, um, the public might be a bit concerned about governance, but it's not going to be sufficiently high on their list that they actually start voting on that basis. Um, so I think the other realistic route to reform is that we wind up with a uh, something like a Royal Commission that for whatever reason winds up you know, expanding its scope and Royal Commissions have a tendency to do that uh, and, and starting to uncover some of the things that have been going on uh, and that winds up driving um, real public demand for change. I think as I said, these governance reforms I've been talking about, pretty much all of them are wildly popular. Um, no government is going to lose votes um, from putting them in place, uh, but they may well lose power.
So just to wrap up here, John, I want to know what is the number one thing you want to see reformed in Australian politics? And just one, just one thing. I suspect the place to start is a federal corruption commission with teeth. And the reason that I say that is that um, if you look at the history of the New South Wales Commission, it's wound up being, amongst other things, a very good institution for institutional reform. So it winds up, firstly, holding these kind of hearings that bring these kind of governance issues up to the top of the agenda. And then secondly, it can write these very powerful reports saying, you know, we've exposed all of these kind of problems. If you really want to fix these problems, these are the detailed things that you're going to need to do to fix them. Uh, and at the moment, we don't really have an institution that's got teeth that's doing that kind of work. Uh, and I think a well set up uh, independent commission, commission Against Corruption at the federal level would help. Um, of course, what's been proposed um, by the Liberal National Party um, last year, uh, and which shows no signs of actually being enacted, um, has pretty much no teeth at all um, and consequently would be useless um, and would be an excuse not to set up something properly. Uh, so that would be the one thing I would go for precisely because it then might start creating pressure to do all the other things as well. Thank you so much, John, for coming on the podcast today to discuss the way forward in Australian policy reform. We'd love to keep talking with you about the issues raised here in the podcast today. And you can chat to us on social media, on Twitter at Grattan Inst and on all other social media channels at Grattan Institute. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcasting app or platform. And as always, take care and thanks so much for listening.